Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? On February 24th, I will be part of the ADHD Toolbox, an online summit aimed at transforming your child's behavior, securing their future, and empowering their independence. It features over 24 experts, including Caroline McGuire, Dr. Russell Barkley, Penny Williams, Lori Dupar, Eric Tivers, Dr. Edward Hallowell, and of course, me. My presentation is titled, Five Ways to Improve Behavior at Home and at School. Go to theadhdtoolbox.com for more details and to register for the summit. And if you're looking for more than five ways to improve your child's behavior and your relationship with them, I have an update for you. Registration is paused for the ADHD Essentials online parent coaching groups and will resume on Friday, February 28th and continue into March. Why? Because I'm going to be traveling for the rest of the month. But don't worry, I'll share the tales of my travels with you when I return and there won't be any interruptions to the release of this podcast. And speaking of podcasts, make sure you're listening to our partner shows, ADHD Rewired with Eric Tivers, and Hacking Your ADHD with Will Kerb. Eric interviews adults with ADHD as well as ADHD experts, and Will shares practical, actionable tips on how to manage your ADHD. Finally, another big thank you to Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies. He did the heavy lifting on this episode, and I greatly appreciate his help. Learn more about Jeff at IdealVideoStrategies.com. Welcome to the show. Today, we're talking to Dr. Don Cole of the Gottman Institute. Dr. Cole is the clinical director of the Gottman Institute, a certified Gottman Method couples therapist, and a master trainer for the Institute. He's also a clinical member of the American Association of Marital and Family Therapists. In today's episode, Dr. Cole talks to us about how we can improve the quality of our relationships by responding more effectively to bids for connection and by turning towards the people we care about. All right, let's get rolling. Yeah, my name's Don Cole. I've been with the Gottman Institute now in an official capacity for a couple years, although I've been affiliated with them for about 15 years. Gottman Institute is headquartered in Seattle. It's a institute that is based on bringing help to couples and families based on the 45 years of research that Dr. John Gottman and others uh, have brought to this field. Uh, My official position is the uh, Director of Clinical Services, which means I spend a lot of time working on our training programs for therapists, and uh, our clinical offerings that we give to both couples and families and so on. And the Gottman Institute, the the two things I know them for, and I I believe the two things that they're most significantly known for are the the concept of bids in relationships and also the idea of turning towards, turning away, and turning against the people we're in relationship with, kids, parents, 
spouses. Can we start with one of the two of them, whichever one it makes more sense to begin with? Well, we'll talk about bids and turnings kind of together because they're sort of the flip side of the same thing. The idea of bids and turning toward or turning away from bids, if you don't mind, I'll give you a little background of how that was even discovered. One of the things that that John Gottman did when he was doing his research into relationships was he put couples in an apartment. And they just hung out there for 24 hours with no specific agenda. You know, it wasn't like you have to talk about this. They just hung out, watched TV, cooked, played with the dog, read the newspaper. And they were under observation for that time. And what we noticed was that people would start conversations with their partner by making a bid. And a bid could be really a a very low-key oh, I really like that song. And the partner then could turn toward the bid. It's an indirect bid. I really like that song. If they just want to listen to the music, they wouldn't say anything. But by saying, I really like it, they're kind of asking their partner to get involved. Tell me what you like about the song. What do you think about it? And what we learned in terms of couples relationships, the couples who were successful over time when they were in the lab, turned toward each other's bids 86% of the time. So I would say, hey, I really like that song. My wife says, yeah, me too. Or really, what do you like about it? Or something like that. And we have a little conversation. A turning away, on the other hand, would be, oh, I really like that song. And my wife just keeps watching TV or reading her book. And it's like I didn't even exist. Uh, The third option would be what we call turning against, which is she responds to the bid. Oh, I really like that song. And she says, why are you always bothering me about your dumb music? You know, so she hears the bid, but she, instead of responding in any kind of positive way, she does it in a negative, critical way. One of the things I've observed in some couples that I know is that, and I I never understand it because it's just not how I work. But I I have some couple friends who, if one of them said, oh, I love this song, the other one might say something like, well, yeah, that's because you have terrible taste in music. But they're not saying it in a way that's aggressive. They're saying it kind of flirty and silly and jokey. Where where does that land? Well, it's it can be a turning toward if it's experienced as a positive, if it's playful. So in fact, playful bids are the best kind. They're the ones that seem to have the most positive power for the relationships is when our bids have that kind of sense of humor and playfulness about them. When you use that kind of sarcasm as a vehicle for play, that can work really well in some relationships and in some families and in others it doesn't. So it really, it has to be mutual for it to be really experienced as a playful turning toward versus a negative turning against. I'm thinking of some couples where it's almost constant. Like I might say that once every 10 bids or something or 20 bids, but for these few couples I'm thinking of, it's all the time, everything that gets said is responded with a negative, but there's this playful sarcasm that I can't always tell which way it's going. It's banter. Yeah. And you know, that kind of brings something to mind. My son, who is now in med school, when he was a teenager, like a 12, 13, 14, he and I really got into that banter with each other and uh, almost anything that we said would be responded to with that kind of tongue-in-cheek negative 
stuff. I don't do that with my wife because our relationship doesn't go that way. But this idea of bids and turnings, of course, is involved with all of our relationships, our parent-child, co-workers, and all of that. And I remember uh, when Greg was growing up, uh, we really went through a period to where almost everything we said to the other was an insult, but it was still a moment of bonding. It felt positive. It felt like a way of two guys expressing love to each other. And some people do that with their partners. I don't. But a bid and a turning is really within the context of how it's received. I'm thinking of this like a game of catch, right? Like a bid is throwing the ball. Toss the ball. And then the turning is I either catch the ball, I'm turning towards, or I sort of look away from the ball and it just falls to the ground and I don't play catch. Or the third option, I would pick up the ball and throw it in a different direction. Okay. Is that turning against? That would be the turning against response. I pick up the ball and say, I'm not playing with you. And I throw, I throw it over the fence Okay. You know, as, as a way of demonstrating, I don't want your stupid ball. I don't want to talk to you about your stupid music. Or I guess you could even just hurl the ball back as hard as you can trying to peg them with it too. Yeah, somehow to make it a negative exchange rather than a positive exchange. Uh, but mostly what happened in the lab, and I think what happens in relationships, the turning against doesn't happen as often. It's really the turning away that is the, is the biggie. Back, going back to the lab, uh, the couples that went through that process that were, when they looked at them five years after those experiment, the couples who turned toward each other's bids 33% of the time. So two out of three times they failed. They just turned away. Every one of those couples was divorced uh, five years later. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's really predictive of the quality of the relationship and the trajectory of the relationship. And thinking about it in terms of parent-child, it's really predictive of whether the parent-child relationship feels close or distant. Do we make bids to our children and do we receive their bids and do they turn toward ours? Do we have ways of effectively connecting and getting each other's attention and starting interactions that feel good, which is the goal? What I'm thinking about right now is the idea that some people have that like, oh, that kid just wants attention. They just need attention. They're just an attention hog. Isn't that just a whole lot of bids? You know, the idea that if a kid is attention seeking, maybe it's because they need attention. Yeah, because they really need connection, right? And they can't get connection without getting attention first. And it may be that the attention, the way they're seeking attention has developed some negative patterns, that's usually based on not getting the responses that they need. And we can kind of help correct the negative patterns of how they get attention. But, you know, to call a kid attention seeking as if there's something wrong with a kid for wanting attention doesn't make any sense to me. When it comes to my relationship with my wife, I'm very attention seeking. <laughs> I am <Yeah>. too. <laughs> I like her attention. I like giving it to her. That's kind of what makes life fun for us. So the idea that there's something wrong with attention seeking, I just find really strange. I do workshops in schools. And so often, I shouldn't say often, but fairly frequently in school, when I'm talking to staff members about the challenges they're having, especially with ADHD kids, there's this dialogue that comes up around, well, that kid is just always attention-seeking. Right. And so as a therapist, my question would be, wonder why? 
I wonder where the attention deficits, not in the sense of ADHD as a neurochemical process, but where are the deficits in this kid's experience of connection and attention that would cause them to inappropriately demand a teacher's attention and be disruptive of a class and stuff? Because sure, those things happen and they, they cause problems for teachers. I'm not saying they don't. But a kid who's seeking attention like that isn't a bad kid. There's something missing, probably. There's some deeper need that isn't being fulfilled. The same is the case for the child of the parent. If mom or dad are thinking, oh, my kid just always needs attention. Well, wonder why, it sounds like, is what you're saying. Yeah, is maybe they do. And the reality is some people are more outwardly turned than others. Uh, you know, some... I've got four granddaughters, most beautiful girls in the world, by the way. And the oldest one can sit by herself with a book for extended periods of time. Her little sister, not that way at all. She's the one who's going to climb on you and initiate contact. So the, the needs for attention and interaction, that's going to vary between individuals because people are different. But if you've got a kid who's seeking attention. It doesn't mean there's something wrong with the kid. It means the system is not meeting their needs. Sort of walking me to my next question a little bit, which is how do we recognize a bid when it happens? Especially if ADHD folks are just less attentive and more likely to miss stuff. Climbing into someone's lap is really obvious, but what are some of the ways that bids might be occurring that are maybe less obvious or are so obvious that they're almost inconvenient and annoying. I know I do that to my wife all the time. She walks past me and I hug her and she's like, cut it out. I'm just trying to get to the kitchen. So what, what are some of the types of bids that we should be paying attention to? There are a lot. In fact, I would say maybe even most of the bids that, that we see uh, in couples and families are more indirect than direct. Uh, direct would be, uh, hey, dad, pick me up, you know or physically walking up with the hands, you know, reaching up for, to be lifted. Let's say a five-year-old, you see them doing that. That would be a very direct bid for attention. But a more indirect one might be, I'm watching television and the kid stands in front of the TV. The kid wants, can you get me a snack? And they may not, you say, well, God, you just ate. I don't see how you're hungry. But, you know, it may be that they're just using that request as a way of initiating some contact. So a lot of them are, are indirect. And I think the best thing I could illustrate about that is how attentive are we as parents and partners? How much do we allow our attention to be focused on things outside of the important people in our lives? And of course, there is, there's always some of that we have to work. And you know, we might enjoy the solitude of putting on our earbuds and listening to music for a while. But the reality is the people who seem to have the best relationships are kind of tuned into the opportunities to connect. They've got their, their filters tuned in that way. And sometimes that's really a matter of intention. One of the things that I think is very true in our world now, even more than when you and I were kids, is the, the universal presence of the private screen. Even five-year-olds have got their iPads and 
are, are focused on their YouTube videos or, or whatever it is that their parents allow them to watch. And certainly by the time they get into preteen and teen and they're playing video games and these things are talking about attention hogs, uh, <laughs> these devices. Uh, and not only that, I really do believe that the people who program these things are very smart people with good consultants who know how to program them in a way that they continue to draw our attention. They draw us in. Just like casino games have that same power. And they Yeah, they're just pushing that dopamine trickle to keep us tuned into Candy Crush or whatever. I, I saw a video of a family for a, a news program and that my wife and I, uh, she also works for the Gottman Institute. She's the head of the research department. That She and I were watching uh, for this news program and it was a family, four kids from college age to 10-year-old, mom and dad. They, the TV was on and every one of them was on a screen except the dog. And the dog was running from one person to the other, making bids. The dog was making bids, but nobody else was. They were all absorbed in their video screens and the dog is coming over and, and then no attention. They would go over to another member of the family. And went to every member of the family just trying to have some petting. And uh, finally, the mom pulled the dog up on the couch with her. But, yeah, I watched that and I said, I don't really think that's the way it's supposed to go. It sounds like the screen, the effects of screens, is ripe for, for the research that you all are doing. And, and particularly, the way that screens both violate and create boundaries your head went in a different direction than mine did when you started moving into everyone has a personal screen and that kind of blocks everyone else out and reduces the number of bids. When you started talking about unmet bids because they're just not tuned in and we're not prioritizing the people who are important to us in that moment, where I went was the way that screens and technology has allowed lots of us to work from home, which is what I do. And one of the areas of challenge for me is when my kids are home, if I have work to do, I don't want them to feel like I'm ignoring them because I'm doing the work. So I've learned through some trial and error, admittedly, to communicate really clearly with my wife and my kids about what I'm doing, when I'm doing it, and how long I expect it to take so that they know I'm not going to be responding to your bids during this time. And it's nothing personal. I'm not upset with you. I'm not being a jerk. I just have to get this podcast edited or whatever the case may be. And I started, I started doing that much more intentionally because over the summer, my kids were home from school. My wife was home post ACL surgery. So the whole family is home. Everything is on me because my wife is pretty much on the couch, <laughs> right? Been there, done that. Yeah. And I'm also trying to work and meet with clients and, and do my podcast and all that stuff. And my kids, because I didn't communicate clearly enough with them, thought that I wasn't prioritizing them because the time that they had with me was unpredictable as far as they were concerned. But what was happening was I was completely prioritizing them. I had them booked in my calendar. Like from this time to this time, Nathan and Gavin and I are going to go bowling or whatever. But because I didn't communicate to them that I was prioritizing them in that way, they just saw the unpredictability of it and felt like they were an afterthought and were only being paid attention to when I had the time because I didn't let them know that I was making that time. I just couldn't make it always occur at three o'clock or whatever the case may be. That communication 
around that might be useful for the sake of bids? Am I on to something here? Yeah, I think so. I, I think that the fact is we do have to shift our attention. I remember telling, again, Greg, who was an ADHD kid and really liked to talk, he would be in the back seat trying to talk and get my attention and I'm dealing with horrible traffic. I just learned to say, Greg, I can't listen right now. So that's kind of a turning toward setting a boundary. I'm not ignoring him. I'm not snapping at him and telling him, hush, Greg, I can't listen right now. Then once I get out of whatever it is that the merging or that I'm trying to accomplish, okay, now I can listen. You know, so to set up expectations of availability just seems like good relationship to me. Yeah. And and that idea of Greg, I can't listen right now is interesting to me because that's like a disappointing turning towards, right? For Greg, he's like, oh, <laughs> but you still turn towards. So a turning towards isn't necessarily always going to feel good, but it will always confirm this importance of the attention. Am I getting that right? Yeah. You know, whether it feels good or not, you know, I, I imagine it usually feels good. Yeah. Why would it feel bad for Greg to hear son, I can't listen right now as opposed to just ignoring him? Yeah. That's a, certainly a better option. Yeah. I, uh, that's not necessarily. Now, if he hears that 90% of the time, when he tries to get my attention, yeah, that's going to be negative. But he can also learn that makes sense. There's bad traffic, okay. So I think that even negative bids can be responded, to, you know, can be done in a very positive way. My wife might say, hey, I need to run the store. Do you want to go? There's a bid. I'm really, yeah, but I'm really tied up right now. I think I'm just going to have to let you go without me. That's still a turning toward in the sense that I didn't ignore her. I didn't bark at her. I acknowledged her, her request or bid for connection. I just can't give it to her right then. Mm -hmm. So a turning towards is confirming that the request was made and then sometimes acquiescing to that request, right? Going along with it. And sometimes you have to turn it down for whatever reason. A turning away would be not responding at all? Yeah, pretty much not responding at all, really sending the message that I, I don't care about your request. So if Carrie says, hey, I'm going to the store, you want to go? And I'm working on my computer and I just keep working. And she looks around for a while and says, oh, okay, I guess I'll go by myself. That would be the turning away. And it would feel very different. And something that's interesting about all of this is it's different physiologically. Our bodies enter, they react differently to these different things. You can measure that. You can measure the different physiological reaction that a person has when they are turned toward versus when they are turned away from. Their heart rate goes up, uh, stress hormones go up, and so on when people turn away from us. And they go down, the heart rate goes down, we get calmer, stress hormones are reduced when there's turning toward. So the experience of this isn't just something we're making up. It's a true, basic human, and I think mammal experience, because I think dogs make bids and, and they turn toward each other or turn against each other. I think, you know, I think all of that is, it's not just about humans. I think a lot of- Any social animal, I would imagine. 
social yeah social animals it, it, it's the basis of the way we connect in our in our social groups so it has a real physiological impact uh, when we're turned toward or turned away from so earlier you mentioned that i believe it was 86 percent of the couples who turned towards were still in good healthy relationships fall no that's not quite it. that's not quite it it was that the couples who were still in healthy relationships five years later, when you looked at their, their laboratory experience, bids were turned toward 86% of the time. That's what I meant. I completely misstated what I was trying to say. <laughs> yeah, There was a 14% because nobody's perfect. So my question here is, because I'm really, I'm kind of fascinated by this idea of, of a turning towards also being rejecting, because I think I thought that rejection was a turning away. And in this case, it's not from what you're saying. So I'm wondering where that plays out in the health of a relationship. And I'm kind of thinking like the most extreme example is a bid for sex and you get shot down. That brings up an emotional response most of the time. So there's like a turning towards of, I'm just not interested right now. I've confirmed that you are interested in having sex with me and having an intimate moment, but no, that's a little bit of a roller coaster, I would think, because my request is confirmed but it's being rejected. How does that play out, that relationship between sort of confirmation and rejection of bids? One of the things that is really important in relationships is that couples find positive, safe ways to say yes or not right now. And there's a, there's a difference between not right now and why are you bothering me when it comes to a sexual bid. There's a difference between saying, tonight's not a good night, maybe tomorrow, thanks for letting me know you love me, can we do this instead? You know, there are lots of ways to, to safely accept the bid for sexual connection and still not feel like, well, every time my partner says, I want sex, I have to be exactly in the same place they are, or I have to put myself in and say yes to their request. That's, that's not it. Uh, there are ways to say, I love you, but not tonight, that can feel good. Now, if that's the only response that someone makes to a sexual bid, yeah, after a while, that's gonna, it's going to feel more like a turning away or turning against, you know, well, that's what you always say. But in the really healthy relationships, there are positive ways to say no. And moving down the family tree a little bit. When a kid asks to play with mom and dad, that rejection, when we say no, I think is comparable for them. Like they're feeling equally significantly rejected because to them, that's a bid for connection in a way that's emotionally charged and fairly meaningful. You remember the Harry Chapin song about cats in the cradle? Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's a real illustration of that pattern where this boy is asking for his father's attention, making bids for his dad's attention, this busy father who never does that. And now the kid's grown and the dad is retired and is seeking the, the son's attention and can't get it. And it's a very poignant song that kind of describes that process. So yeah, I think there is a, if, if there's certainly a parallel between uh, a kid saying, hey dad, play this game with me or let's go throw the ball, or let's go ride bikes or whatever. There's certainly a parallel between that and 
the request for physical attention that we give to our partners. Yeah. And continuing in sort of the the parent-child domain, right? Prior to recording, you had mentioned that the bids between spouses or between partners change when they go from sort of lovers to parents. Well, they certainly can. We know that one of the most, if not the most significant transition in the the life of a couple is when they become parents. And so many things change. The demand for their attention changes. You know, a baby needs stuff and I, I can't ignore my baby's bids, which are usually cries. Loud and obnoxious. <laughs> and piercing and, and impossible to ignore. That, you know, those bids have to be attended to if you're anything like a good parent. And, you know, I think most of your listeners probably are, if not all of them. But it adds a whole new dimension of this whole process of turning toward versus turning away and finding the new balance to where we can feel like we are both turning toward our kids and turning toward our partner. What you see in a lot of couples is that so much of the conversation, so much of the uh, connection between the partners are now totally about the kids. And they've kind of lost a sense of who are we other than, you know, that we're so-and-so's parents. So, you know, I, I hear couples all the time say, you know, every time we go to a restaurant, all we do is sit and talk about the kids. So what's the point of even going on a date? They sort of lose the ability to, to talk about other things or to uh, share about their, their work day or anything. Because in some ways it makes sense because our kids are so important to us. But we're more than just parents, even when we become parents. And sometimes, sometimes that gets lost. Of course, we've all heard the, the result of that where people end up approaching the empty nest phase of life and realizing, I don't even know who this person is. Yeah, and that's where, that's where I can see that phenomenon happening where you're, you're growing as an individual, your spouse is growing as an individual, you're both growing as parents of these two kids, but other than that, you're not growing together with any intention. Right. You were talking about uh, sexual bids earlier. You know, so, so sexual bids become, how do we maybe work this out every now and then among all the other demands of life and parenting and things like being sexual with each other goes way down to the bottom of the list of things that need, need attention. And I imagine feels that much more important because that's the connection between the partners. That's the intimate you and me together connecting if, if we don't have some other way. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, for many couples anyway, for maybe most, certainly bids for sexual connection are among some of the most important ones. And that when those bids fail, they really do cause a disruption. One of the challenges I have, not in the sexual realm, in the kind of in the kitchen, it always happens in the kitchen. I'll be talking to my wife about something important. That's like a fairly long conversation. It's one of those like 15, 20 minute conversations at a minimum kind of deals. The, those conversations that you talk about it for 15 minutes and then other stuff eat dinner or whatever. And then it comes back up again later that night or the next day. And it's, this is a conversation that's going to be, we're going to have this conversation for months, like one of those. And I'll be talking to her and, and responding to that bid, making sure that I'm giving her the connection and, and, and attention that she needs. 
And then my kid comes in, right? Dad, can we? I need some milk. Like whatever it is. Now they're throwing a bit at me. And one of the challenges I have is trying to navigate being responsive to my wife's bid, but then having that responsiveness interrupted by being responsive to this next bid. And then usually the kid bid is something quick. Like I can respond to that and then come back into my conversation with my wife. But I have identical twins. So invariably when one of them makes a bid and then I get back to my wife and like four seconds later, the other one is over there because he didn't realize that his brother wanted milk. And now that his brother has a cup of milk, he wants some too. <laughs> is there a graceful way to navigate that? Or, or is it just the way it is and suck it up, buttercup? I think it's really to a large extent about the the really clear feelings of affection and attention that we do give to each other because you know bits bits don't happen just kind of in an isolated way they happen within a context of an emotional relationship so if i know that my wife really wants to find time to talk with me be playful with me interact with me, have sex with me. I know these things are really true. And there are demands of work or demands of parenting or so on that, that kind of disrupt that. It's a whole lot easier for me to accept because I know that the desire for connection with me is real and valid. So keeping that in balance really has to do with how good are we at the times when it can work, you know, when there is opportunity or when, you know, the kids finally get to bed, do I just crash? Uh, I don't want to talk to you either. The kids have worn me out. Just leave me alone, you know, and I begin to get the sense that, well, yeah, you've got energy for the kids. You have no energy for a life with me, you know. So what energy level being, I think, one of the answers to this. But what are some reasons that people begin to turn away or against? Why would they begin to do that? Sometimes it's an intervention of a really impactful thing, like having twins would qualify, that might become a legitimate thing or a crisis at work or a health crisis of a parent. You know, these things that really do kind of interrupt the the day-to-day -day flow of life and that we fail to see the importance of connecting. Usually the the slide into the failed bid pattern uh, happens gradually. Does that mean it can be interrupted then? Like if people hear this episode and they're like, oh, I'm in that pattern. Let me be more responsive to bids. Is that like a way to salvage things? Absolutely. You get you know, retuned in, shift your focus, make more bids, be more responsive to bids and so on. Talk about it with your partner and break the cycle. But what we know is that it's easier for most couples to enter into the negative state than it is to get out of it. Do you know why? Well, we go into the mathematical description of all of that, but we won't. Okay. <laughs> well, negative feelings are stronger than positive feelings. That's basic survival stuff. Okay. And so things that hurt us or scare us tend to have stronger impact on us than nice little things. You know, we're more of afraid of a snake than we are pleased by looking at a flower. 
our bodies react differently to those two experiences. So we have to be more intentional about climbing out of it. Yeah, that's why, you know, in the lab, the, the successful couples turn toward each other's bids 86% of the time. That 80% positive seems to be kind of a good break-even point. 50-50 is not an even point. You know, 50-50, you're in the deficit at that point. If I turn toward half my partner's bids, we're in an emotional negative place because negatives are, are experienced more strongly than positives. Turning away hurts more than turning toward helps. Okay, I get you. That makes sense. That's just kind of the way it is. And I think that's why it's easier to enter into negativity than it is to get out of it. But you can get out of it. A lot of times what couples and families don't realize is that you don't get out of it just by wanting to get out of it. You actually have to change patterns. I think of it, you know, I like to go whitewater rafting every now and then, and you, know, you get stuck in those little whirlpools. You know, If you just keep doing what you did that got you into the whirlpool, you'll never get out of it. You actually have to do something differently to get out of that, that stuck place. So I do think there's some intentionality about the process. And the same thing with parenting. You know, the, the dad who, or the mom who's so busy with work that they find, you know, I really have turned away from my kid. Maybe they hear the Harry Chapin song and say, you know what, that's kind of what I'm doing. Maybe I ought to change that. Well, to change a pattern like that, you've got to do it on purpose. Let me ask my kid some really good questions. Not just what did you learn at school today or what happened at school today? Because we know the two-syllable response to that from most, at least by the time they're preteens, right? Nothing. Yep. <laughs> Nothing. Yeah. Some questions I like to ask my kids are, give me two good things about today at school, about going skiing, about whatever it is, and one thing you would change if you could. I get a lot of mileage out of that. Yeah, and Brendan, if you think of that as actually creating a ritual around that, which is what successful families do. Okay, now we sit around the table and we talk about, tell me an up and a down in your day. And we go around the table and we do that every day. We call those rituals of connection because they're places that we have built in the opportunity for bids to work. Yeah. And also growing from there, right? Like I don't just say two good things, one thing you could change if you could. After I get one of those things, I'm asking why, maybe not for every single one of them, but I make sure that I extend a couple of them so that the connection stays. Right. So we follow up questions, we show interest, we find humor in all of that, uh, which is why this process matters so much. Awesome. And just being mindful of time, do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with the audience? I would say is that Paying attention to partner and paying attention to kids really does make a difference. It makes a difference in terms of our, our own health, the health of our families. It helps us kind of deal with all the distractions. So maybe just be intentional about it. You know, realize that slipping into the negative cycle can happen to anybody. And instead of saying, oh, well, I'm too ashamed that it happened to us, let's find a way to fix it. And there are ways to fix it. You know, the Gottman Institute is a, it's a clinical institute and a, a training institute. You know, just, we got lots of resources uh, for, for families, couples, and parents. So, you know, check us out on the Gottman.com. There's always, uh, there, and there's lots of things out there that can be really helpful. Hey, you're still here. Nice. 
thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com, and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.